closing argument. Walter Hudson. Pursuing happiness thoughtfully. 8 to 10 weeknights on Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130 and 103.5 FM. The task I have before me in this opening here is to complain to you about how hard my life is and somehow stick a landing wherein it's actually of value to you. Where where you're actually like, yeah, I'm glad I listened to that story. So here we go. Here it is. Here's my day. I started a new job recently, new day job. And it's a job that is, I'm not going to tell you what it is. That could cause some problems. Suffice it to say, it takes on a, a nature that is, there are shifting work conditions based upon the seasons. I'll put it that way. And we're entering the busy time of the year. And so I started just in time for things to start getting busier and busier and busier. And as a result, I've had less and less time during my day, which, you know, onto itself would be annoying, but not terribly a huge problem if it wasn't for the fact that I got another job, which is coming in here and talking to you guys, right? And so on this Monday morning, I was getting up and, you know, going through the whole of Monday morning, you know, that whole thing of like, oh, good Lord, another week. Again. Another day. (laughs) Got to do this all over again. And uh, my wife drops on me right as I'm about to walk out the door. Hey, our kid has a a concert tonight for school. And I need you to show up because I'm busy doing whatever it is that she does. And I was like, what? There's no way. I can't possibly do that. Well, long story short, somebody won in that conversation and somebody lost. And I ended up going to this thing. And so here's where it becomes of value to you. All right. I'm walking in here tonight, and this is this is really saying something. I'm walking in here tonight with the least amount of preparation that I have ever had and also completely exhausted physically, mentally, <laughs> spiritually, totally exhausted, no prep. Here's how it's of value to you. Because I'm in this state, I'm in a completely experimental mode. Like, I, I have very... You know, like the kids say, I have very few things to give, so to speak, right? And uh, and I'm willing to go to places that I might not otherwise be willing to go if the if I was well rested and thoroughly read. In fact, I'm going to start off tonight. I'm going to start off tonight making the case for colonization, and I have a specific target in mind. I want to make the case for the American colonization of Iran. We'll come back to that. We'll circle around to that. Let's let me walk you through my cognitive process here. So here's the story. One of the stories that got me thinking along these lines from the Daily Wire. Trump administration announces major policy shift toward Israel. By the way, you're listening to Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 8 to 10 weeknights. And you can be part of this fiasco at 651-989-5855. So Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced during a press briefing on Monday 
that the Trump administration was reversing an Obama-era policy that now does not view Israel's settlements in the West Bank as a violation of international law. The Trump administration, this is quoting from Pompeo now, the Trump administration is reversing the Obama administration's approach towards Israeli settlements. U.S. public statements on settlement activity in the West Bank settlement activity in the West Bank has been inconsistent over decades. And he goes on to give some of the history. You know, Carter viewed it one way. Reagan viewed it another. The Obama administration apparently put in a shift that declared the settlements in the West Bank to be illegal under international law. And the shift now is that the Trump administration is reversing the Obama decision. And it's really interesting because I, I learned of this tripping upon a a YouTube video that was from CNN. So it was an official CNN YouTube video. And their title for the video was Trump reverses longstanding policy. How could it be longstanding if the Obama administration is the one that set it for? I mean, the longest it could possibly be would be what, 10 years? That And apparently it Reagan was the last one to make a decision on it. So it occurs to me that Obama's the one who shifted the longstanding policy, but, you know, that's just fake news for you, CNN. But th this raises an interesting question because Pompeo gave this statement. And then in the question and answer afterwards, you know, of course, you've got the all the hand-wringing and, and pearl-clutching going on with the mainstream press about, oh, my Lord, how could you possibly side with the oppressors, Israel, in, in, in the West Bank, in the Palestinian conflict? And one reporter in particular asked a question that I want to say it's stupid. It is stupid. But I really can't, like, I don't want to target her as being uniquely stupid for asking the question. Because she was just, she was stating and projecting the, the conventional wisdom regarding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is that, in a, in, in a broad sense, that you're dealing with two morally equivalent, at best, two morally equivalent forces that have gripes with one another that can be settled in an amicable way. I, I think that's actually probably the most generous characterization of what the conventional wisdom is. I think it would be perhaps more accurate to say that people tend to view Israel as the villain. In the, in the mainstream conventional foreign policy discourse here in the Palestinians as the underdogs and the oppressed or whatever the case may be. And, you know, the, the question that she asked was, how are you going to bring the Palestinians to the table having made this change for negotiation? Because, you know, Pompeo was talking about how well, we think that this legal view that settlements onto themselves do not necessarily present a per se violation of international law. That's almost exactly how he said it. It was this really kind of calculated, very specific, delicate way of stating it. That that was going to that this announcement from the Trump administration was going to open the door or set the framework wherein the, the peace talks or the negotiations between the Israelis and the Palestinians could take a next step, could move from the current logjam that they're in. And he didn't go into detail regarding how that was going to pan out or what, or what the vision is for what that's going to look like. 
But the reporter kind of took it as, well, you, if you're telling me that you want to sit down at the table, you want to negotiate with all of these parties, with these two parties, then how are you going to get the Palestinians to buy in when you're basically taking a position that it's okay for the Israelis to be setting up settlements in territory that the Palestinians regard as their own? And I'm not particularly interested in the answer that Pompeo gave. I'm interested in the answer that Pompeo should have given. This is the answer that Pompeo should have given. We're not interested in whether or not the Palestinians come to the table. We're not even trying to get the Palestinians to come to the table because you can't negotiate in good faith with people who are acting in bad faith. In other words, take a side. De declare who is morally correct, who's morally right, who has the moral high ground, and denounce the party that does not have said high ground. And in this case, it's pretty clear. You've got one side that has made it clear through their actions and their statements, but more so through their actions, that they will not tolerate the existence of the other side. It's pretty tough to have a negotiation in that context, right? And so when you're dealing with folks who are anti-life and anti-decency, there's, there's no basis upon which to have a good faith negotiation that's going to be productive and get to peace. When peace is not what they're looking for, when peace is not their objective, when the only type of peace they're actually interested in is, the, is that which comes after you've utterly defeated the targets of your ire and grind them into dust, if that's the only peace they're interested in, then that is an untenable position to move forward with. And I think that this type of thinking, because, you know, the, the whole conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians strikes me as an example, perhaps the example, of this weird social tendency that we seem to have in the modern world of pretending that conquest is not an actual thing. And this kind of brings me back around to the whole, the, the whole provocative idea of colonization and bringing back colonization. Because, you know, it seems to me that uh, the, the only way to actually affect peace in the face of evil, in the face of an aggressor, in the face of people who've declared their intention to destroy you or to destroy your way of life or to take that which is rightfully yours, the only real way to ensure peace in that scenario is to defeat them, to defeat them and to leave them wholly incapable of ever making good on their thoughts ever again. And historically, that's how it's worked, right? When two forces have come in conflict with one another, typically they go to war. One side wins, the other side loses, and you have peace. Peace comes after the resolution of the war. Ever since World War II, we've been proceeding under this bizarre notion that there's some newfangled way, that we've, we've come up with a new way of doing things that's somehow going to maintain the peace. And it doesn't involve conquest. It doesn't involve winners and losers. It involves the UN, question mark. It involves negotiations with international cabals. It, it, it involves declarations of 
the the intricacies of international law from third parties like the United States? Um, no, that none of that none of that has worked. This is the one that, the one thing everybody will admit to is that none of this has worked, right? There is no peace in the Middle East. There has been no resolution. There's been no movement. It's been one of the top policy priorities of every presidential administration going back to when I was born and several administrations prior, basically since the existence of Israel. This has been a policy priority of, oh, we got we got to sit down. This is going to be the year. This is going to be the term. This is going to be the president, the administration that turns it around, that makes a difference, that helps resolve the issue through talk. And here we are decades and decades and decades later, and nothing has been resolved. Well, that's because you can't re you shouldn't try to reinvent the wheel. We know what will work, and it's the complete and utter defeat of the enemies of life and peace. Which again brings me full circle to my idea regarding colonizing Iran. We'll get into that one when we return. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, Did you guys catch that? The morning show is going to talk about how to decolonize your Thanksgiving. It would be, it'd be an interesting game to play of... You know, here's the headline. Now you tell me the story before you actually read it. Like, what do you think is going to be included in this article? That'd be an interesting game to play. Uh, in that one in particular, the, the whole notion of colonization, you know, we're going to circle back around to that because I, I, I think there, there's clearly a negative connotation in the term colonization. It's thrown away or it's thrown around with the same sort of weight that you would uh, expect to go with a word like racist or bigot or, you know, fill in the blank phobe. It's almost thrown around like as an accusation or oh, you're colonizing this space or you're colonizing this institution. I want to I want to engage in a little bit of defense of colonization here momentarily. But first, let's take your calls. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Let's talk to Greg in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Oh, hi. Hey. Um, I just uh, wanted to make a comment. I'm I'm not a war expert, but... Um, that makes two of us. Yeah, I, the, I think what you're describing are policies that really grew out of Eisenhower. And the... If you go back to the period of Smedley Butler, who was quite an interesting guy, he published a book, War is a Racket. Mm-hmm. And if, if you kind of watch the behavior of various parts of the world during wars, you find that banks love wars because they can increase the amount of debt. Oh, sure. And make a lot of money on them. Sure. And so during Eisenhower's period, he had a very memorable speech where he said, uh, be aware of the uh, the military industrial complex. I'm Correct. not quoting yeah. that quite right, but <clears throat> any rate, uh, and that you know that follows along Smedley Butler's concept. But um, Eisenhower, I think, saw the the enormity of World War II and mm-hmm. wanted to change that. Mm-hmm. And so he 
had his own concept of policies that would not cause that to happen again. Of course, right. he's in the face of the banks who want it to happen. Right. And, you know, that isn't described, and people really don't want to talk about that too much. We've been at war for 20 years on the right. war on terror. Not even kidding. Yes, exactly. And, I mean, we won. We were we fought World War II magnificently in the period between, uh, I'd say, January of 42 and August of 45. Yeah. You know, remember that Europe was fighting that going back to 33 or 34. Mm-hmm. And that... Um, you know, it clearly was a European bank game. Um, we fought World War One, which was absolutely a European bank game. We had nothing to win or lose in that. We were just dragged into it because England needed people on their side to increase the size of their army. So they were American soldiers that died for the cause of the European banks again. And so I think the the greatest thing that could happen is if we would become more understanding of, had a better knowledge of, the way that money flows in a war. I think you're right about that. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that, um, that the the motives offered and the rationale given for international conflicts are as, as steeped in theater and misdirection as any other form of politics. I think that's a fair statement. I appreciate your call, Greg, and your offering some historical context there. That said, I do think for all of the merits of what Greg offered, and of course, you know, that opens the whole rabbit hole of getting into the Federal Reserve and fiat currency and you know the, the way money is manipulated and inflation and all that jazz. Perhaps that's a discussion for another time. Setting that aside... I think the mistake that a lot of critics of past wars and past decisions regarding war have made is throwing out the baby with the bathwater in that, you know, you end up swinging the pendulum too far in the other direction where you go from, you know, oh, we, we should support this war, that war, and the other war to all war is bad and war should be avoided at all cost. And it's interesting because Greg brings up Eisenhower and World War II and the desire to want to prevent that atrocity, that global atrocity or something on that scale from happening again, particularly in the nascent nuclear era. And of course, it makes perfect sense that you would want to detour the possibility of all out international global war with nuclear bombs. That's not something that anybody is particularly interested in having to experience. However, I feel as though a couple of things. First of all, taking Eisenhower at his word and presuming nothing but the best of intent on his part. I think that his his desire to prevent another World War II from happening was very quickly co-opted and corrupted in order to create a, pardon the term, new world order wherein war, instead of preventing war, war became perpetual. It became perpetual and channeled. You know, it's kind of like the, the whole idea of, well, yeah, forest fire is a bad idea, but if you have controlled burns, it can actually be healthy, right? 
it's sort of that's that's an interesting analogy. I don't know how perfectly it matches the reality, but I think there's something there. I think there's something to that analogy. The idea that the approach that the the international muckety mucks have taken since World War II, the whole the the cognitive rationale and justification for the United Nations and uh, th- these these processes, these proxy wars, the Cold War itself, how everything has gone since then has been this idea of, well, we don't want to have an all-out global world war. We don't want to have World War Three. But if we allow, if we have little release valves, you know, let war flare up here, flare up there, channel to these particular, these particular parts of the world, have it confined to these particular purposes, almost directed. If we can direct its energy in such a way as to actually benefit us, to benefit the establishment, to benefit those who are making money off the system, well, then that might actually be a good thing. And so, I don't. I don't. I think. I think it's disingenuous. This idea that we're the 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 quote unquote peace processes. You know, we started off talking about. Israel and Palestine and this change that the Trump administration has made to their view of the legality of Israeli settlements. The idea that the peace process is actually intended to create lasting, stable peace. I I think there's a a little bit of deception going on there, a a little bit of undisclosed intent, to put it as gently as I possibly can. But then on the other side of that, I I think that that same motive, that desire to not see war on the scale of World War II ever happen again, I think that fueled what I regard to be the greatest generation's greatest mistake. The greatest generation's greatest mistake, in my view, was sheltering their children from the realities that they had to endure. And this is kind of a generational cyclical thing that happens where, you know, there there are different types of generations that cycle throughout the centuries and you know you always get the one that has to deal with the the great ordeal whatever that is and then they try to shield the next generation from having to experience what they experience and then that creates a generation that has a very particular set of personality traits and then that has an effect upon the generation after that which has an effect upon the generation after that and then you end up coming full circle you know, and, and the cycle goes about 100 years. There's somebody who wrote a book along these lines. The title escapes me off the top of my head. But it bears out under analysis. And I think the greatest generation's mistake was trying to, in, in an effort where they, they were confronted with a reality that they had to address because it was right there staring them in the face and there was no getting away from it. And so they sheltered their kids from realities in order to protect them. And as a result, you ended up getting progressive generations that were further and further removed from the necessity to negotiate reality, which brings us to where we are today. Uh, When we come back, we'll take your calls at 651-989-5855. But I do want to finally come full circle to this whole idea and unpack this idea of why we ought to be taking a serious look becoming a a truly a colonial power once again. You know, the United States has been accused of being an empire for quite some time and accused of being a being of colonizing the world in various ways. Well, there's colonizing 
and then there's colonizing. And I want to I want to dare to in this safe space, this safe cognitive space where there's nothing at stake. None of us are policymakers here. Our discussion isn't going to change the world tonight. We can talk about whatever. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. Let's uh, let's allow ourselves to go to that space of what would colonialism in the 21st century led by the United States actually look like? And is there a moral justification for it? Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Talk Hall. teased now delivered i'm going to give you my case for the american colonization of iran and uh, i'm not i mean i wouldn't go so far as to say this is a joke like i i'm really seriously like let's explore this let's Let's consider it as if we actually were going to take it seriously, as if we were going to give it some thought. If we were, we're going to colonize Iran, take it over, install our own government, and control it from afar. It's, it's enough to make you blush nowadays, right? In, a, in an era where the, the term colonization is used generally to apply to things such as a white girl wearing a... Uh, Asian dress to a prom, right? Or, you know, like, <laughs> there, are, there are other examples I could give, but you get the idea. The The word, because there is no actual colonization, real-life colonization taking place right now in the world, in order to maintain the lie that America is this imperialist colonizing entity, they have to water down the definition to where it's basically meaningless. But I'm not talking about that definition. I'm going old school. I'm saying we actually should literally colonize another nation that is not ours. We should walk into a sovereign nation and tell those people how to live. Not only tell them how to live, but at the point of a gun, under the force, control their lives and control their nation. By the way, I'm a libertarian. How How about that for cognitive dissonance? I'll explain it all here momentarily. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your Radio app. We are here 8 to 10 weeknights. Appreciate you being with us. You can be part of the conversation at 651-989-5855. Brianne taking those calls, producing the show for us. So here's the news that got me thinking along these lines. So from the Hill, the United States is ending a sanctions waiver for civil nuclear work at a site where Iran recently announced it was enriching uranium, according to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and that was announced today. The United States will terminate the sanctions waiver related to the nuclear facilities at Fort Dow, effective December 15, 2019, Pompeo told reporters at the State Department. The right amount of uranium enrichment for the world's largest state sponsor of terror is zero. Iran originally constructed Fardau as a fortified underground bunker to conduct secret uranium enrichment work, and there is no legitimate reason for Iran to resume enrichment at this previously clandestine site. And so that's the news that got me to thinking, right? And and it also comes in the context of what we talked about at the beginning of the hour, which is the the policy change, which was announced at the same press conference by Pompeo, 
to regard Israeli settlements as not being a prima facie violation of international law. And it kind of raises a similar question in the sense of, okay, how long are we going to do this dance, right? Like, how long are we going to pretend that economic sanctions are going to solve this problem? If, if you've got a regime that has declared its intention to disrupt the international order at the very least, that is the least of their ambitions, to potentially, through their proxies, enable the destruction of American lives, the destruction of American cities, this is their plan, this is their desire, and they're enriching uranium, and your capacity to control what they do with that uranium is extraordinarily limited. It occurs to me that sanctions are not going to do the trick, right? Like, if they're hell-bent on going through this process after everything that we've been through, every, all the song and dance, all the routines that we've, we've put ourselves through over the decades, trying to get Iran to, as Pompeo put it today, be a normal nation, which I really appreciated that, that language. We just really want them to be a normal nation. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah. Which, see, that, and that's very similar to the whole Israeli-Palestinian thing, right? The question you need to ask yourself is, if they did what we wanted, what would that look like versus if we did what they wanted? So if they did what we wanted, they would be a, quote, normal nation, which is to say they would respect the individual rights of those living within their borders. They would respect the sovereignty of the nations around them, including the nation of Israel. And they wouldn't be they would become economic partners in a free market and international trade. That's what they would do if they conceded to our demands. What we would do if we conceded to theirs is die. That's what we would do. So that tells you where that's that's the moral calculus right there, right? We are good, they are evil. We are right, they are wrong. So what does this have to do with colonization? I think that the whole, the whole notion of sovereignty and the, re, the core of my dissonance with Ron Paul, in particular on foreign policy, who's a guy who I highly respect. I supported both of his presidential runs in recent years. But the one area where I'm in most disagreement with him is the area of foreign policy. I think the fundamental conceit of Ron Paul and those who think like him along these lines is that every nation has a morally equivalent claim to sovereignty, right? That apparently if you have a flag and if there's a map with lines on it that says where you're at, that that onto itself bestows through some moral alchemy the right to govern and the, and the right to exist as such. It doesn't. In order to have a... The moral claim to national sovereignty is no different than the moral claim to individual sovereignty. It is dependent upon two things. One is your existence, but the second is respect for the rights of others. Let's bring it down to the individual level. 
because we under we all seem to understand it on the individual level. If an individual were to decide onto themselves that they were no longer going to respect the right to life or the right to property of those around them, we would quickly identify that person as a criminal and we would treat them as such. And what would that mean? It would mean at the very least that we would control that we would take away their freedom, right? We would jail them at the very least in order to protect others, in order to protect people who are innocent from being harmed from the person who is not respecting other people's rights. How is it any different nationally between nations? The answer is it's not. It's morally exactly the same. And so if a nation like Iran has demonstrated over many decades that it has no intention whatsoever of behaving in such a way as to respect the rights of both those who live within its borders, its own jurisdiction, and the sovereignty of the nations around it, and has designs on fomenting chaos and destruction and potentially blowing up an American city and you know this, that, and the other thing, and proxies for, for terror, the leading state sponsor of terror in the world. If that's the type of nation they are, then why should they be allowed to remain a sovereign nation? My contention is they shouldn't. And we would have every moral right to move in there, kick out their government, install our own, and basically take them over. Take them over and mandate, because the only way that you can ensure that they're not going to enrich uranium is if they physically can't. If they physically don't have the ability to do it because we're standing there with guns pointed at their head, keeping them from doing it. That's the only way you can know for 100% certainty it's not going to happen. That's my case. Stated as concisely as I can in the time allowed in a radio segment. Very interested in your reactions. 651-989-5855. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. enthusiastic landslide of agreement that I expected to my unconventional proposal of uh, making Iran an American colony laid out the case in broad strokes for the self-defense colonization of Iran in order to ensure with 100% certainty that they are not enriching uranium. And they are not going to, through their proxies and through their subsidization of terror, end up causing harm to American citizens and potentially destroying an American city. Uh, we'll start with the feedback from Liberty Hour, loyal listener, often contributes to the program via Twitter. He says, the answer is not foreign entanglement, taking sides and inviting blowback. USA should not subsidize one's colonization of another nor should we subsidize the colonization of our homeland with refugees from these ancient perpetual conflicts. And the, the nut of that is very evocative of the, the type of thing that Ron Paul and to a lesser degree, Rand Paul would say, right? That we, we shouldn't entangle ourselves. George Washington, right? We can invite him into the conversation as well here. We shouldn't entangle ourselves with foreign entities. And of course, I agree with that, 
But again, I go back to my point. Like, I agree with that in principle, right? That, of course, we shouldn't get involved in affairs that have nothing to do with us whatsoever, where we have no discernible interest in terms of defending ourselves and defending the rights of our citizens. But the context required in order to, in order to mind your own business, other people have to mind theirs. That's, how, that's the only actual social con- contract that exists. I'll mind my business, but you have to mind yours. And the and when somebody is not minding their own business, when somebody's over there making noise, saying, hey, and they're looking at what you've got, and they're looking at you, and they're eyeing up your family and saying, I'm coming after you and yours, and I'm going to do you harm and take your stuff. If, if, if your answer to that is, well, I don't want to get entangled, it kind of goes back to the old Aragon line in Lord of the Rings, right? War is upon you whether you would invite it or not. You have to acknowledge the hostility that is being expressed towards you, not just put on blinders and pretend it doesn't exist. And so, you know, the, the consideration that I'm taking is what can, what can we do knowing that, that there's this entity that is taking aggressive action and is, take, is taking action to be capable of doing immense harm, mass destructive harm, from afar, from the other side of the planet, literally, they're, t- they're making efforts to make that happen. It'd be one thing if we were just dealing with you know, conventional warfare, then we, could, we can consider ourselves, because that's the thing, is when George Washington made his statement, there was an ocean between us and foreign entities. And an ocean meant a lot more back then than it does now. We're living in a different world. And we got to take into consideration the modern context. All right, let's get through some of these calls as quickly as we can. Dom in Maple Grove. Welcome yeah, hi, Walter. I'm hey. kind of surprised why the FCC hasn't called you and asked you about this controversial topic you're taking on. <laughs> well, they're not, they're, it's a government. They don't no, work that I fast. know, but it's an interesting, really interesting topic because, you know, I came from a country, India, which was colonized. Sure, right? Yep, right. Yeah. You know, we have mixed, mixed, a lot of people have mixed feeling about it. But, you know, Iran is already somewhat colonized involuntarily. If you look at it, you know, the people have an admiration for everything American, mm-hmm. movies, you know, uh, burgers, whatever. The politicians may not want it to be colonized, but the average Iranian probably would welcome it. I mean, I'm saying it is my speculation because of their desperate economic situation, which is basically what happened with India when the British came in as traders and colonized India, you know, and say, well, we're going to just trade with you. And then a couple of years later, hey, it uh, looks like you got a lot of resources. And, right, you know, right, we're gonna right. Take what we can. Yep. And they stayed for 200 years. Yep. But is, is colonization a good thing? There's a lot of politicians in the British uh, Parliament today that are of Indian origin. Mm-hmm. They're taking the British, uh, I mean, the government to task, and they're up going up there giving speeches about you guys screwed us over for 200 years. Yeah, and you know, so that's they, we do we do have, they do have good relationships with India right now because of it being a part of the Commonwealth, but. The idea with which British came to India was like, you know, you guys are primitive, uh, you know, uh, tribe. We're going to make you into a civilized society, which is right. what they still think. So right. I don't know. There's not a clear-cut argument as to, you know, is colonization good or bad. But I would say if, if you know, if we even think about colonizing Iran, the people would probably say, you know what, our life might turn out better. 
because of uh, the freedom, you know, and liberty that America proposes. But I don't think this is a reality that's going to happen without a lot of bloodshed. That's no, no, you're, you're listen. I'm not. I didn't bring it up because it's practical. No, I, I brought it up because it, it's good radio. <laughs> but yes, I appreciate the call and the insights, Dob. You're absolutely correct. And he's he brings it. He brings up the essential question, right? Of like, well, we've seen this movie before. We've seen what happens when a uh, world superpower colonizes another nation and isn't it always bad well just because something has been bad doesn't mean it always would be context matters nuance matters we'll continue this conversation when we return closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 1130 a couple of the stories I want to get to tonight, and they seemingly have nothing to do with one another, but they're similar in theme. They're similar in tone, and that they both seem to illustrate that we may be turning a corner culturally, which is very, very good news. We may be getting to a point where the culture at large, including in the mainstream, is starting to get sick and tired of the hardcore left and their tactics and the social justice nonsense and the wokeness, the trend may be at the limit of its welcome in the mainstream. We'll examine that as we uh, proceed here tonight on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. But before we get to all that, I want to uh, continue taking your calls and wrap up this conversation we've been having about uh, a hypothetical colonization of Iran by the United States of America. That's right. I, I'm proposing 21st century literal colonization of another nation by the United States. I laid out my case for that in the last hour and uh, getting some responses. You could join them. 651-989-5855. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 8 to 10 weeknights. Brianne taking your calls and producing the show. Let's go to Tim from New Prague. Welcome to the program. Good evening. Evening. My question is, um, back in the 70s when I was in the 70s and 80s, I was in the service, uh, the Soviet Union had submarines right off our east and west coast. Right. Now, how did Ronald Reagan handle that? You tell me. Well, he built up a navy. And they back down. And um, I'm kind of in a unique position because I was part of the failed rescue mission in Tehran mm. uh, back in 1980. Mm. And uh, lost some fellow airmen and Marines. And I also was in Beirut, and I lost a lot of fellow Marines that I served under. Mm. So the key is, is having a strong Navy. And you surround that country... And if that nuclear bomb goes off, well, then then you get the John McCain, what John McCain wants, bye-bye. But putting our own precious blood out there, um, not a good idea. Not a good idea. Um, it's a very rough terrain, yeah. and it would be a lot of death. And quite frankly, um, I've seen a lot of death. I've got a 27-year-old nephew that's seen two of his friends die in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and I got a 21-year-old son, and it's real easy 
sitting in Minneapolis when you don't have a skin in the game sure. and say that. I do. I've seen it, and I know it works. And Ronald Reagan defeated the Soviet Union, which was much more of a danger than Iran will ever be. Well, I don't know, but I, listen, I don't want to. I don't want to dispute. I mean, your your the experience you bring to the table is is beyond dispute, and I don't want to claim you're wrong in any way. But I will ask you a couple of questions. First, sure. first of all, when it comes to, I mean, your last statement there that the Soviet Union presented a much greater threat than Iran ever will. By, by what standard are you measuring that? Because certainly in terms of overall military might, you're absolutely correct. However, there's all, you also have to take into consideration the, the psychology and the mentality. The reason why, why uh, what do they call that, containment, which, which seems to be what you're describing, the reason why containment worked against the Soviet Union is because the Soviets <laughs> wanted to live. The same cannot necessarily be said regarding the insane people running Iran. Now, you're talking about theocrats who have th th this fanatic conviction that they're serving God by destroying their enemies. That's not the type of person who you're going to scare off with submarines. I would say that is true, but in all honesty, having faced that... Um, I don't think they have that willingness to die um, as they claim to be. You think I mean, that's I a little bit of bluffing? I can't say that for every individual. Sure. Because I've served in there, and um, uh, the problem has always been Iran. I mean, I will give you 100 things. It's always been Iran, and we had Saddam in place to counteract <laughs> right. Iran. Right, yeah. And, of course, Bush... Screwed that up. Rumsfeld blew that one, right? Um, and created greater problems. But well, and and by the way, that's where going back to Liberty Hour's tweet about foreign entanglements. That's where Ron Paul and and the like are one hundred percent correct. Like you, right. you can absolutely take a a bad situation and make it ten times worse by pulling on the wrong thread internationally. And I kind of look at I don't know. Just last week it was on again and. A lot of these terrorists and things like that kind of remind me of the good old George C. Scott character Buck Turgenson from Dr. Strangelove. Mm -hmm. And they talk a big game, but then when they notice what real nuclear, <laughs> what sure. nuclear bomb would do, uh, well, you know, then it's a different game. Then, then, then it's then, then the right. tough talk. And and you know, and I'm I'm absolutely willing to consider that possibility. However. You know, everybody. Everybody's a crazy until they actually pull the trigger, right? You know, there's a, everybody's got tough talk until they they're actually you discover that they weren't kidding, and so there's a certain level of danger in assuming that somebody's just posturing. And uh, I just, you know, I would need to be convinced through some sort of evidence that it's all hot air and, and bluster and that there's nothing really behind it. Um, but you're certainly in a much better position to judge that than I am. And honestly, when, when you use, when you put ground troops, when you put troops on the ground, your foreign policy has basically failed. However, we do have, we do have a Navy that's very strong. Now, I'm biased towards naval air over Air Force air, but that's a, you know, a lifelong thing. Um, but you can get an aircraft 
in airspace and file missiles, non-nuclear, they can really do a lot of damage. If they if they want to if they want to get a little frisky there, mm-hmm. air power can do that uh, very quickly. And uh, after a while, it does beat them down. Now, can you win a ground war with with air power? No, but. Uh, with this, I think you can convince a lot of people. I think, I, you know, like I said, they've always said Iran's been ready for an overthrow for, geez, and when I first got in, and that's a long time ago. I won't give away my right, age, but right, right. <laughs> but um, it does have an effect on psychology. And if you're getting the car beaten out of you, little shock um, and awe. It, yeah, it's well more Kurt bombs away Curtis LeMay type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that does do a lot of damage. Now, will it be, beat them into submission? But no, but it, it does change a lot of things, and um, I'm pretty confident that we know, and you said this in your argument, which was a very reasoned argument, that we know where they are, we know what they're doing, and I think it would not be a stretch that we could take it out um one way or another if it got to a certain point. You're saying targeting the uranium enrichment facilities. Correct. They, they, they have a good idea where they are. I mean, uh, Tim, I, I mean, very I much. I haven't been in that area in tw- you know twenty years sure. since I retired. Oh, there, I just gave away my age. <laughs> That's but, all right. Uh, we 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 appreciate it. I I appreciate your commentary and very much. Thank you for your service, especially. And uh, thanks for calling in the program. I want to get the, hear from Sam in Plymouth here as well before we have to go to another break. Welcome, Sam. Hey, Walter. Thanks for having me on. Um, I think it's a bad idea because we've done it before. Uh, the Pahlavi dynasty was an American puppet. And our direct involvement in Iranian affairs led to the mullahs uprising, and now we have the uh, Islamic Republic. So, give, um, give me, give me, more, give me more of the history lesson because you're I, you're referencing the history of Iran. Give me some more details for myself and the listeners regarding how it is that we got here, because it sounds like you're well versed. I'm not, I'm not super well-versed, and I'm not a friend of the Islamic Republic of Iran, right? I think they're a bloodthirsty regime. But at the same time, in 1953, you know, there was a CIA operation to have a coup against Mossadegh because he was nationalizing the oil service. And I think that was part of the Cold War games that were going on with us in the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. And we installed the Pahlavi dynasty, right, um, the Shah. And the Shah was a brutal dictator um, who destroyed um, dissent mm-hmm. and put people in secret prison, torture, mm-hmm. all the stuff that, you know, a lot of dictators over there do. And that led can, to can, the I, feel, I feel, being able to take power. I feel obligated, and I'm very glad you called and, and made this point, because it presents the obligation for me to draw a distinction between what I'm suggesting and what you're citing as a historical example, because one thing I'm not saying is that we should install a brutal dictators to subjugate the Iranian people. What I'm what I'm saying is, is that we should, through force, install a government that is going to ensure that both the individual rights of the Iranian people and the national sovereignty rights of of rights respecting nations, both in the area and globally are protected. And so this differs from, because when we had that call from Dom, and I appreciate I appreciate you contributing to the program, Sam. When we had the call from Dom earlier, who of course hails from India, uh, and of course India has this history of colonization with Great Britain. That's another historical example of colonization where the motives were 
to extract resources, right? And this is the this is the problem with the way the United States has done things. Is that to the extent we've been colonialists, to the extent we've been imperialists, we've done a really bad job of doing it. Because an actual empire doesn't just put in a put in a puppet government and then say to hell with it, whatever happens happens, and we don't care what the consequences are to the people who live there and the region and the generations that follow. A, a, a real quote unquote empire, like the Roman Empire, right? They they would go in and they would in, they would install a government to make that place more like Rome. That was their whole point. And you know, obviously. There are limits to how far you can expand that type of arrangement. And I'm not talking about – and the problem with the Romans is that they wanted to expand the empire for the sake of expanding it. In other words, there's this – there's the kind of like ego self-satisfactory sort of self-serving motive of we're going to get their resources or we're going to – to display our greatness. These are the types of motives that have informed colonization in the past. What I'm suggesting, in a sense, is something new. It's both new and old. It's a fusion of an old way of doing things with a, with a new motive. And the new motive is we affect peace through the neutralization of threatening regimes. Not with the goal of controlling other nations in the long term, but with the, with the goal of creating a stable world wherein we're not facing people who want to kill us on a regular basis. Now, does that come easily? Does that flow naturally and easily from human nature and certainly from historical examples? No, it does not. It's a high ideal. And that's why it's something that we can talk about within the safe confines of a talk show. When we come back, I want to get into talking about which one of these do I want to tackle first. There's the Colin Kaepernick thing. Of course, we got to hit that. Maybe we'll start there. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. time a hard time deciding which of these two stories to go with but they both serve the same overall point which is that i suspect and i'm almost reluctant to say it out loud because i might jinx it but i have this sense that something is changing in the culture there's something in the air that indicates that people like not just Republicans, conservatives, libertarians, people on the right, you know, those of us who have been complaining about this sort of thing for years, but people who have to date largely gone along with the woke narrative and the social justice nonsense and, you know, the, the Colin Kaepernick's of the world. I guess that's where we're going to start is Colin Kaepernick. People who have previously been like, yeah, that guy's got a point when he takes a knee during the national anthem. We should hear what we should hear him out and hear what he has to say. There seems to be a turning point past which mainstream voices are starting to realize, yeah, I don't think we can go along with this anymore. This this is starting to look like a bit of a clown show. And they're starting to push 
back. And like I say, I hate to even say it out loud, certainly to broadcast it, because I don't want to jinx it. I'm hoping this is true. I'm hoping this is real. And we're actually turning a cultural corner. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. So let's see. Let's let's talk about the because I'm sure you guys have heard by now the whole deal with Kaepernick in a nutshell. For some reason, he was given the opportunity to try out for NFL teams after three years of not being in the NFL, three years of not being on any team. He was provided with an offer by the league to do a workout where there would be scouts representing, I believe, most, if not all, of the NFL teams. And he could try out, basically, and see if any of them were interested. And my understanding is, you know, I, I'm not a, as you have, long-time listeners will be able to tell you, I'm not a sporting guy. I'm not a sports person. So, you know, forgive me if my, my summation of the situation here doesn't meet ESPN standards, whatever the case may be. But apparently... The, the teams were granted some sort of anonymity whereby they would, Kaepernick and the public would never know if a team passed on him. So that there could be this plausible deniability. So it was set up in such a way as to give Kaepernick an opportunity to try out and potentially be on an NFL team without the teams being exposed to the, the, the muck of having to deal with the politics that come along with Colin Kaepernick. Well, that wasn't good enough for him. And Matt Walsh over the Daily Wire sums it up this way. He says, I am not aware of any other case of the NFL holding a private mid-season workout on a Saturday, the day before a game, no less, attended by 25 scouts for a backup-level talent who's been out of the league for 35 months. Yet that is what Kaepernick was given. There's no conceivable football reason for the NFL to go to these links for Kaepernick. And preceding this, he goes into detail regarding Kaepernick's lackluster career. He's not a star player and never was a star player. And even if he was a star player, it would still be highly unusual and probably unprecedented for the league to stage an event of this sort just for him. But it wasn't good enough for Kaepernick. The Nike salesman pulled out at the last minute, apparently deciding sometime on Saturday morning that he needed the event to be open to the media. Apparently, he wanted to bring his own camera crew, and he wanted to be able to grandstand and you know make a, a display of himself in this whole thing. The NFL didn't want media, never agreed to have media, and for perfectly understandable reasons. They weren't looking to host a Kaepernickapalooza media spectacle in week 11 of the regular season. They weren't going to play host to a televised PR stunt for an out-of-work 32-year-old former bench rider. Why would they? How could any sane or reasonable person expect them to? And uh, Matt Walsh goes on to make his case under the headline that Kaepernick is a con man and not a football player. And you would expect that type of commentary from someone like a Matt Walsh, right? Or from someone like yours truly. But here's the thing. it's not That reaction is not confined to right-wing commentators also from the daily wire after former san francisco 49ers quarterback colin kaepernick held a workout on saturday ostensibly to impress nfl teams because he held his own private workout after canceling the nfl's official one 
sports analysts from ESPN and CBS speculated that Kaepernick shouldn't wait by his phone. No one is going to call him. As Cleveland.com reported, speaking on Monday's edition of Golic and Wingo, ESPN's Mike Golic opened, Does Colin Kaepernick really want to play football? As much as everybody's applauding you for taking over the narrative, you cost yourself. If your goal was to play football, in my opinion, you cost yourself by not performing in front of 25 teams. Congratulations, you controlled the narrative, and then you basically said the NFL should stop running scared afterward. And I don't think there's a team out there that is going to bring you in and sign you. Former Jets head coach Rex Ryan added on ESPN's Get Up, the NFL doesn't have to have this kid play. I'm sorry, what I see on the video is, and then he makes some comments regarding Kaepernick's actual talent. He says, as a coach, you don't want this circus in the locker room. And I'm sorry, but that's what it is. Is it going to be worth all the extra media? You're going to have to a backup quarterback having press conferences. On CBS, the NFL Today host James Brown stated before Sunday's game, Colin Kaepernick missed the opportunity both to return to play and more meaningfully to further impact social justice on the broader and bigger platform of the NFL. It's also abundantly clear, however, that there is mutual distrust in the relationship between Kaepernick and the league, its office, owners, and teams, as evidenced by yesterday's fiasco. But that notwithstanding, it was an opportunity, no matter how you cut it, to build a bridge toward a return to the league. 25 teams expressed their interest to come see the workout, and he didn't take advantage of it. Now, history has shown that to move forward, it is most effectively done inclusively to move from protest to progress, and this was a moment missed. And then ESPN's uh, Stephen Smith blasted Kaepernick (laughs) and saying that, uh, basically saying in essence that he doesn't want to actually be a football player. He just wants to engage in martyrdom. And uh, that's clear. But these are not the types of things that we were hearing from these types of people about Kaepernick up until now. There seems to have been a breaking point, a turning point, where people are starting to turn against Kaepernick. He has outwoke himself. And that that's there's another episode of this or manifestation of this that I want to share with you when we come back that, again, leads credence to the idea that perhaps there's a, a delicate transition taking place wherein people are starting to realize, you know, that we're, we are never going to appease this beast that we've been trying to get along with, known as the radical left. We're, we're never the goalposts, to keep it within football terms, keep getting moved further and further away, and there's no indication that we're ever going to reach the actual goal with these people. And so maybe instead of continuing to concede to their demands, we ought to stand and, oh, I don't know, fight back. One can only hope that that's the type of thing that's taking place. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 8 to 10 weeknights. Appreciate you making us a part of your evening routine. You can be part of the show at 651-989-5855. Brand taking those calls and producing the program for us. I'm, I'm in in the middle of uh, taking through a couple examples of what I hope is a broader phenomenon 
wherein the mainstream culture is starting to rebel against the wokeness. People are starting to push back. And maybe the truth of it is that it's it's not that people are beginning to push back. It's that it's it's rising to the surface. I think that this pushback largely has always been there. It's just taken the form of unstated grumbling under the breath, right? Of like, ugh, ugh this wokeness, ugh, social justice nonsense. But nobody dares say it publicly because they don't want to be canceled, right? But people are discovering their gumption suddenly. And the first example we ticked through was Colin Kaepernick's latest debacle, wherein he uh, he went a bridge too far, and the uh, sports press that was formerly with him started to turn against him. Is this a sign of things to come? Let's ask it, Ton in Roseville. Welcome to the program. Hi, Walter. Hey. Uh, I I agree with you that there's some kind of a generational turning taking place. Uh, uh, Strauss how theory of generations type thing, the pendulum swinging, but people are awakening from the woke stream. Right. But uh, I'm in, it was inevitable because as the craziness comes, people actually wake up and smell the coffee and say, this is insane. Right. I'm curious, your thoughts on, is ble- the Blexit movement a part of this awakening from the woke stream? I like think so. The yeah. black, <laughs> I'll let you explain Blexit. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate the call, Tom. I appreciate the question. And yes, um, Blexit being the exodus of black people from the Democratic plantation, which is a concept that, you know, I was pining for 10, 15 years ago, and I've been quite happy to, to see it begin to surface and manifest. I think that does have something to do with it, or that that is a manifestation of it. And the, it's an interesting question because... The premise of intersectional minority politics, of this identity politics, I mean, there's the stated premise and then there's the real premise, right? I'm talking about the real premise of it. The real premise of it is to try to create a a radical, revolutionary political coalition to overthrow capitalism and a Republican form of government and install effectively communism. That's basic. That's their, what they're getting after. They want complete control of the state, mandated by a, a select, woke, academic elite and oligarchy who are going to dictate from on high every aspect of our lives. That's their goal. And in order to affect that goal, they first have to destroy the status quo in order to build upon its ashes. And to that effect... They're trying to rally this co- this intersectional coalition of different forces. The, the Achilles heel in that strategy is that there is no actual natural allegiance or alignment between these different disparate minority groups. And African-Americans stand as a fantastic example. As a group... Even even if you take it into consideration, like the the whole the claim to victimization that African Americans as a group have, and of course there's there's some legitimate kernels there, right? Jim Crow was a real thing. Historical chattel slavery was a real thing. These were real injustices, real grievances, real harms. 
that have in a demonstrable and calculable, articulable effect upon individuals. There's there's a there there when it comes to African-Americans. But what does the African-American story have to do with the, oh, I don't know, trans story? Or for that matter, the Muslim immigrant story, right? Like there's, there's this idea of we're brothers in oppression. We've all been oppressed. The, the, the whole term, we've talked about this before, the term people of color, it's a dilution of experiences. It's, an, it's a moral equivocation. You're, you're trying to put forward the idea that the, the story of women as a group is the same as the story of African-Americans as a group, is the same as the story as, of gay people as a group, and that they should, they should all consider themselves part of the same amorphous sort of uh, proletariat that's going to overthrow the bourgeoisie, right? But that only works to a point. When you actually start confronting your own and trying to enforce these, these new social norms that you're imposing upon the, the woke world, you're going to get people who push back. Like, think, think about African-Americans as a group, and individuals you know slash are in that group. And think about the the most radical notions regarding, say, gender, gender identity, transgenderism. Hell, even gay marriage most recently, right? And think about the man on the street, right? Not... Not your, your favorite blogger, not somebody you come across at the Huffington Post, but the guy on the corner, the guy at your job, at your workplace. Think about what he thinks about gender identity and trans issues. And then imagine how he would react to the demand that he see it through the lens of wokeness and the social justice warriors. Chances are... Nine out of 10 sincere reactions you got from individual African-Americans about gender identity and trans issues would be somewhere on a spectrum between outrageous laughter and mockery and complete and utter disgust with the entire concept, right? And, and, and I, I bring up African-Americans because I think, you know, because I am one and also because I think that that's, there's a pretty stark example there of the unwillingness to go along with the narrative. But I don't think it's confined to African-Americans. I think this is true of Americans generally. When I talk about a cultural turning point that seems to be taking place here, in the face of people getting canceled, in the face of watching as people's careers are ruined, as speech is shut down, as we're told that we have to concede to a gender spectrum, and all of this utterly ridiculous nonsense that overthrows millennia of basic societal understanding. I think the man on the street across the board, across distinctions of, of race and ethnicity, is looking at this thing, and in their private moments, deep down inside their heart, they may not be willing to say it, but in the privacy of their own heart and mind, they're thinking, this is nuts. 
I, I can't go along with it. This is crazy. This is the this is the direction the world's going. No, <laughs> this ain't for me, right? I had. Well, I'll tell you when I come back. <laughs> Interesting little family anecdote, and then we'll uh, wrap things up here with a story coming out of business, the world of business. And it has to do with the New York Times as well. That is extremely encouraging and feeds in with this overall theme of people starting to fight back finally. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Those crazy nights I do remember. My millennial cousins-in-law who, when I met them, were the same age my children are now, are starting to pair off, get married, and have kids of their own. That's enough to make you feel pretty ancient. The uh, The eldest of uh, this particular group of cousins, well, I suppose it would be inaccurate to say he's with child. He's not with child. They are expecting. I think that's the... The accurate term, and uh, they were they were uh, gonna have an event or a party gathering of some kind to announce the sex, the gender of uh, their little bundle of joy. And the youngest cousin, the youngest brother in this group, was gonna be unable to attend, and he was getting all sorts of grief from his mom about it. And from other relatives as well. And the final word on the topic, <laughs> when he was having this conversation on speakerphone, apparently with him, was he was like, listen, he's like, the kid's going to be 18 before it knows what gender it is anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what? what's the point? Why should I show up? What, to start the countdown? <laughs> yeah, which I thought was a, a pretty good pretty good comeback that did actually get him out of having to attend as i understand it so yeah i feel as though there's this pushback that's taking place uh in the culture against these insane leftist ideas and it may be only now that people are are gaining enough confidence to articulate it publicly but it is nonetheless very heartening so the other story i want to talk about in these regards also comes to us from the daily wire it involves the New York Times and FedEx. Now, I want to take this a little bit. I want to try to do this in chronological order because there was the what kicked it off was there was a New York Times article that took FedEx to task regarding the amount of taxes that they pay. And their basic claim was that FedEx doesn't pay enough in taxes. And uh, the CEO of FedEx came back and came out swinging. He said that the New York Times article is a deliberate distortion of our company's actions before and after tax reform, because they were trying to link FedEx to Trump's tax policy. FedEx has paid federal income tax every year, including fiscal year 2018. Following the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, FedEx invested billions in capital items eligible for accelerated depreciation and made large contributions to our employee pension plans. These factors have temporarily lowered our federal income tax, which was the law's intention to help grow GDP and generate investment in the U.S. The accelerated depreciation deductions are only temporary with higher depreciation and lower taxes 
early in the life of a new capital asset. This is then offset by lower depreciation and higher taxes later in that asset's life. And they go on to describe the effect of the tax cuts. That's not the original statement that I wanted to, to point to, though, however. There was one that was much more salty. And this is, this is FedEx CEO Frederick Smith. He said the New York Times published a distorted and factually incorrect story on the front page of the Sunday, November 17th edition concerning FedEx and our billions of dollars in tax payments and billions of dollars in investments in the U.S. economy. Pertinent to this outrageous distortion of the truth is the fact that unlike FedEx, the New York Times paid zero federal income tax in 2017 on earnings of $111 million and only $30 million in 2018, 18% of their pre-tax book income. Also, in 2018, the New York Times cut their capital investments nearly in half to $57 million, which equates to a rounding error when compared to the $6 billion of capital that FedEx invested in the U.S. economy during that same year. I hereby challenge A.J. Sulzberger, publisher of the New York Times and the business section editor of the, to a public debate in Washington, D.C. with me and the FedEx corporate vice president of tax. The focus of the debate should be federal tax policy and the relative societal benefits of business investments and the enormous intended benefits to the United States economy, especially lower and middle class wage earners. I look forward to promptly hearing from Mr. Salzberger and scheduling this open event to bring further public awareness of the facts related to these important issues. That was a statement from the CEO of FedEx in response to the New York Times. Now, this this is evocative of when Hank Reardon stood up before a panel of judges in that scene in Atlas Shrugged and basically told them to go to hell basically told him, look, you want, you want my metal, you want my factory, you want my company, company, come and take it, but bring your guns. Show, show us who you really are. Reveal yourselves for who you are. Now, this doesn't quite have that same level of moral authority because the case that Sulzberger is making here or that Frederick Smith is making here is still a pragmatic one. It's still, still a matter of social utility. He's arguing, listen, we pay more taxes than you guys do, as if the amount of taxes that you pay is some hard, sort of measure of moral worth. And he's also suggesting we're doing more good for other people through investing in the economy. And that's true. That is true. However, it's not the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that FedEx like any company, like any individual, like any business, has a moral right to their profits. They have a moral right to the wealth that they generate through the production of value, and they have a moral right to retain as much of it as humanly possible and to not be taxed simply for the sake of getting taxed. And that's the case that, that I wish Smith would make, but I'll take this, right? Because this is a turning point. Because what the, what the left said, why did the New York Times write the article in the first place? Right? They're following a model that has been working up until now, which is browbeat companies, browbeat figures of note in order to get them to comply and put them in line. And there has been nothing but acquiescence and appeasement in response up until this moment. Perhaps now, perhaps this is a turning point past which businesses who are finally sick of it, you see it too with the legs of Bill Gates pushing back against Elizabeth Warren. People are waking up.
that you can't keep appeasing somebody who wants to destroy you. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.